This week's episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is sponsored by Positive Grid and their super duper amazing amp, Spark. Spark is a 40 watt combo amp just by itself. So it's like a practice amp there. But what it also comes with is an app that you can design and customize all the sounds by all the rigs, all the effects pedals, everything that you possibly could want to do. It's like you're in guitar heaven running around plugging in every amp and the store in heaven. It's fantastic. But you can get it right now uh, if you go to positivegrid.com backslash spark. And we also have a special promo code just for our listeners. And Brian, what's that? Uh, it is RRBS4. RRBS4. Use that for the next week until May. Uh, what is that? May the 5th? Go get yourself a, a little discount and, and tell them the boys at Rock and Roll Bedtime Story sent you. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, we're here to talk about the rumors and innuendo about your favorite songs and your favorite bands. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. What is up, Brian? It is your turn to tell a story and I have no idea what's going to happen tonight. So if you want to get involved in the show, send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Uh, you can check out everything we do at wearethestoryguys.com. But when you hit up that email, we do read those and we do consider them. And we've gotten some good ones recently. Uh, but today's episode... Murdoch is going to be uh, in shape and form a little different than a lot of the episodes we've done recently. Uh, we're still going to be firmly planted in rock and roll. We're going to talk about a lot of our favorite acts, acts we've talked about on the show before, but we're going to get at it a different way, and it's because of listener Nate, who is listening in Iowa and reached out and said, I have got something I need you guys to verify for me. And I, this has not happened before. So we might hear like, hey, I want you to check this out because I've always heard this rumor. I've always been confused about this, but I've not gotten a, can you verify this for me? So we're like detectives today. All right. Well, this is awesome. You know, this is the best part of my week for sure. <laughs> I, I I started this week waking up like I got to go to work and do that thing that I do every day. And now it's like, I'm a night detective. You're a Brian. night detective. It's it's 11.15. Uh, we're three beers in, and we're playing night detective. So Nate had this experience. He wants to know if he was having the wool pulled over his eyes. Story goes like this. His city's slowly trying to get back to normal post-COVID. They have this gallery walk, right? You could do that social distance, I guess. And he and his lady friend go, and they keep their social distance as a show of good faith. And they stumble into this building in downtown called Mainframe. And the way I understand it, I think it has a lot of different studio spaces in it. And they go into this studio space, and Nate, and it's it's like a lot of jewelry and stuff. But Nate immediately notices that among the jewelry and some other art in the space, they've got album covers that are decorating the walls. And they're like classic album covers. So he assumes they're decorations, right? They're They're like iconic. Let me tell you some of the ones he sees. He sees 1984, Van Halen. He sees Purple Rain. Prince. He sees stuff from Tom Petty and Fleetwood Mac and Bon Jovi, right? So he's like, okay, I guess this guy's like they're selling jewelry but he also likes rock and roll so he's decorating in this weird way or whatever. So he's curious so he goes up to the guy who's running the place and he's like hey man, cool album covers. You big fan? And the guy goes oh actually we have those up because my wife and I designed all of them. (laughs) Now, Now if this happens to you Murdoch, what's your reaction? Tell me what you would say. So 
did you or your wife, which one of you came up with the idea of the baby having the cigarette? We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk yeah. about that today. That's my first question. Absolutely. First of all, kid, I love as a you. kid. I remember like, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that we both got there. Uh, yeah. As a kid, it was such a weird thing and I didn't know who to ask. Now, Nate, I've, I've never had this conversation. You, Holy you're, shit. you're about to find out, like for real, find out. Now, Nate's skeptical. Now, I, I, my first reaction would have been like to to humor the guy, but to think it was BS, which was kind of what Nate did, because he's not in LA, he's not in New York, he's in Iowa. So he yeah. grabs the wow. guy's business card and he takes a picture of it and he sends it to us and he says, "I want to know is this dude legit?" Oh my gosh! And that Nate, is why to, what a Great letter. Today, we are going to do a little digging into the lives of non-rock stars, but people who have been in a lot of rooms with a lot of different ones. They're gonna... rock stars. They made the covers and the memories and the things that are on the pictures that are on the things that smell good, dude. We're... Oh, man. Let's just... I can't believe you said that, but let's talk about that for a minute. Let's just go down that road. Let's. I, my eyes are closed. My olfactory senses are open. I'm reaching for a disc. I mean, I have a lot of discs. You don't. You got rid of all yours. I got one. Uh, soccer Mommy right here. My wife got me this for a recent birthday or Christmas gift. And, uh, oh, man, it smells so good. Oh, <laughs> it smells like... Yummy plastic. Plastic and paper and, oh, man, dude, it, like literally, I'm not kidding. And that's so true. That's a visceral experience, right? Um, but that's not that's not actually what we're here to talk about. We're ta- here to talk about the art on the album. So, I mean, like, I wasn't planning on doing this, but, like, I'm just going to pull what's next to me, right? So I've got, like, this this Twin Shadow record, right? This is a pretty awesome album cover. And I, I, I'd never really thought about album covers before and about how they happen i mean here's the soccer mommy one again right it's a picture of her there's a lot of color the album is called color theory so there's a play there so like how does this happen right when you're one of these artists even now or back in the day what you know yeah how how does that all come together so we'll we'll talk about that we'll talk about that and how about pink floyd's wish you were here is that the guy shaking shaking his hand and he's on fire yeah yeah uh, that's a yeah, good one. That's totally creep, right? Totally weird. Na- name yeah. another favorite, anyway, another favorite going. album cover. Another favorite. Uh, Nineteen eighty four, of course, I know is among your favorites. But and and that Pink Floyd one's great. Do you have another one that comes to mind when I say album covers? I, 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 I like Rumors just because I held it a lot, so I looked at it a lot, and I saw the kind of fake arm stuff. If you look at it, like it's there's extra stuff, and he has balls hanging down. Uh, if you oh. look at Rumors. Fleetwood Max. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's stuff happening there that no one has ever even paid attention to. Like he's he has two little balls hanging down, and if you look, it looks like one of them has an extra arm or a leg. So it's totally cool. But I mean, I probably like I probably looked at Shout at the Devil all the time, and I was like, so if I put sun in my hair, I'll look just like <laughs> the singer from Motley Crue. Yeah, Brian did a lot of sun in. My wife still likes to make fun of me about that. The first couple of years we were together, she was like, I don't really think you need that. And I was like, I don't know. It's pretty cool. It turns yeah, out she was right. It smells weird. Yeah, it does smell weird. And when it turns green, when it smells and it turns green, it's <laughs> it's the lamest. But let's get off men's hair products and back to art, Brian. Let's when, bring so This is just full circle from life. When you get into... Uh, you got into Fleetwood Mac. So you said rumors. What do you think about Tusk? I'm not a big fan of Tusk. I mean, what do you think about the album cover? Oh, it's kind of cool. 
<clears throat> I don't know. It's a little unassuming for me. I'll be honest. It's not one that I pay much attention to. Okay. So that that's going to come up. So let's start with Nate's question. The name of these folks on this business card, Jay Vigan and Margot Nehas, are they who they say they are? And if so, what in the Des Moines are they doing in Iowa? So I've, I've, I dove into this research over the past week, two weeks, two weeks. I've been doing a lot. I've really gone down wow. a rabbit hole. I've found interviews. I found article after article. I found profiles. So, so the so short answer. It's, Brian, that means it's true. They are legit. A, okay. A hundred album covers between them that include some of the most iconic records in your collection. Are you ready for this freaking list? I've been ready for this list since the. Mo- I kind of wanted to tell you to hurry up, but I knew you wanted to tell a story. <laughs> I'm building. <laughs> but yeah, I'm please, building dramatic tension. Please, give me this goddamn list. Let's Van Halen, 1984, Prince, Purple Rain, Fleetwood Mac, Tusk, Quiet Riot, Mental Health, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, their logo, Bon Jovi, 7800 Fahrenheit, Doobie Brothers, one of the live records, uh, Stevie Wonder, there's one from him, there's a Rod Stewart, actually no, they were in front of Rod Stewart, but I don't think Rod Stewart ended up biting on their suggestions. There's a whole lot freaking more. So my question becomes, how? How did these two people, who are a couple and are still married... How did they do all of this, and how did they end up in Des Moines, Iowa? So it, it means we got to move back for a second and ask that question. Uh, how the heck does someone get into the business of doing album art? Because to me, that doesn't seem like a full-time job. I just figure this no, stuff it, was like bought piecemeal. And, and, the, and the, you know, the people that had the jobs in Xanadu, the movie, like that, they were just kind of just screen printing the things on the big posters, and it was like, <laughs> man, this is just like... This is just they're in the system. They're not even making the art. But yeah. So what they, I mean, what do you think? Really have you ever amazing. thought about this? Have you ever thought about like there being one or two or three people who are responsible for so many of these album covers? No. Um and, and you know, I, I guess it's because at some point I started listening to um different kinds of music or even independent music where it like everything looked really crappy you know (laughs) (laughs) we don't want to invest anything in any part of this we want you to just feel hear the art man hear the art uh so so here like i had to find out there it's great because this is a bigger question right about album art but we have this case study so we can look at jay and margo how we will refer to them for the rest of the show and We'll look at their story because that's something that we can excavate, and that's what I did. So the two of them meet, Art Center, College of Design in Los Angeles in the early 70s. And this is how they get into it. So they're at this College of Design, and Jay has a teacher who keeps dropping in class that he's at the in the art department at a and It's like, yeah, man, I'm in the art department at a and You know, no big deal. And uh, so when he graduates, <laughs> the guy gets him connected and he's like oh you know maybe i can get you some work and uh jay starts to send in some stuff and getting like small projects and stuff but he doesn't get any album covers for a bit so margo's still in school and she lands a different introduction she meets someone who introduces her at warner brothers and ends up in this room and there's a whole story about this that we won't spend a lot of time on that, that she is told in interviews but she basically ends up in this room pitching ideas and, and eventually designing the uh, album cover for Unborn Child by Seals and Crofts. 
in 1974. Oh my. Seals and Crawford. Holy. So that's the one that starts it. Is Seals and Crawford. I I can't believe she was doing in a pitch meeting. Yeah, it's it, wow. it the story's the story's really interesting. I'll put it in the show notes. But so here's here's what happens. Jay has a twin brother. And and <laughs> Jay's brother's name is Larry. And Larry and Jay and Margo in 70s LA decide to open up their own graphic design company. Wow. And they start because they both have ends, one at A&M, <laughs> one at Warner Brothers. People just call them when they need stuff. So we're going to get into the specific stories about Jay and Margot in the album covers that they wow. created. But I want to, for a moment, I want to pause and I want to back up way, 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 way before the idea of an album cover even existed. Because that is the question that this begs. What do you know about the invention of album covers? Like, can you can you point to a period in history or a time or like say this was the first album cover? Do you have any idea? Huh. Well, I mean, they started making classical music first. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do you know how they packaged it? Can I tell um, you? Yeah. Cardboard. Check this out. <laughs> I don't know. Check this out. So the Illustration Chronicles have a great piece about this. I had never thought about this before. We're going to put this in the show notes. You need to go look at the art and read this piece. But I'm going to, I'm going to read you some of it and, and summarize a lot of it right here. So in 1939, there is a 23-year-old kid named Alex Steinweiss. He died in 2011. And he was working at Columbia Records. So here's what happened. He had just been named Columbia's art director. Now, Columbia's idea... They'd had, they'd had some guy who had gotten into a position and basically said, what we need to do is we need to hire an art director. But their definition of the art director was he was basically going to design promotional displays and ads. But this yeah. kid, our boy Alex, had panache, baby. And he, he was not going to settle for that. So he's working at Columbia Records, and he has an inspiration. He grabs a photographer that's on his staff, and they head down to New York's West 45th Street. And they stood outside the city's famous Imperial Theater. And looking up at the building's distinctive marquee, they go, you know what? This is it. And so at the Imperial Theater, Steinweiss barges in and convinces the owner to briefly change the signage of the marquee. And mm, so as, yeah. as evening falls, they swap out the letters, <coughs> which is a whole production, right? Have you ever watched them? I still see like at the Palace yeah. Theater in Louisville when they change the letters. It's a whole thing. It, yeah, because yeah, it's with the stick and everything. Yeah, well, they, yeah, I know it looks so antiquated. You're like, there's not a new way to do this. So here's what they changed the letters to: <clears throat> "Smash Songs," or I'm sorry, "Smash Song Hits" by Rogers and Hart. And they light it up, and the photographer wow. snaps a picture, and in doing so, he captured what would go on to be the very first album cover. Wow, that's a great story. Man. So these Holy days, we, we tend to take album artwork for granted, right? Pri but prior to Steinweiss, the record industry didn't have graphics. So when the 78 RPM emerged during the 1910s, they were all sold separately. So each record would last three to five minutes. Each one was packaged in dull paper or cardboard sleeves, right? You've, you've seen that. Cardboard. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, it might have the name of the producer on it or the name of the retailer who was selling it. So if you buy it at, you know, whatever... Five and Dime, Ben Franklin's, or I don't know where you'd buy it. It would be stamped with the name of the store or something. But it wouldn't have, hey, this is the Andrews Sisters or whatever, right? I'm getting my time period screwy, but just hang on. By the 1920s, yeah. record labels begin to offer special record albums. Now, this is hilarious 
because I don't know if you know what these are, but they're kind of this crazy precursor to what ends up being CD books that we all had in the late nineties, <laughs> but they were like big yeah. and you could like slide your record in and show, yeah. you know, to keep them safe and all that kind of stuff. By the 1930s, some record companies were expanding on this album idea by issuing specially pre-assembled albums. So they would take one of these and they would put in there recordings of a particular artist, a genre, a suite of music, whatever it was. But, Despite this idea, all these collections looked generally the same, and there were like not visual clues, right? They were only thinking about the music and the delivery mechanism. They were not thinking about how they how it was labeled. So this twenty three year old kid changes the game. He has to convince Columbia because they're not on board at first. It's gonna he wants a twenty five hundred dollar investment in nineteen thirty nine or whatever, which is a crap ton of money. They're not into it. They've never needed it before. Right? So, I mean, think about this, right? This is when you talk about innovation. I do innovation in my day job. And when you talk about innovation, the thing you always talk about is identifying the things people don't realize they need. Or they don't realize how you can you can take something from here and push it all the way up to the top with, with a small tweak. And that's always what you're looking for. And this is what happens. He gets them to go for it. And I just, I want you to pick a number. How much percentages? This is going to be a percentage I want from you. How much do you think record sales increase when they start putting album art up? 93%. 900%. (laughs) (laughs) From 1938 until 73, this boy Steinweiss works actively in record cover design. He's at Columbia for a long time. He goes on to design packages at London, at DECA, at Everest Records. During the course of his career, he produced nearly two and a half thousand covers and created almost every one of them by hand oh my gosh so there's a this article you got to read that'll be in the show notes there's also going to be a link in the show notes to the book steinweiss the inventor of the modern album cover and i'm telling you it looks totally like it needs to be both in the r&r bedtime stories official bookshelf and probably on my coffee table because it's it looks fascinating it's got actual interviews and essays from him and it, like this is the kind of story that makes a kid like me love marketing, right? I mean, that's a lot of what I've spent my life doing. And this is the kind of, when I hear these stories, I'm like, this is it, right? Because it's like that one little tweak. Like they hadn't thought to label the package. Crazy. Yeah. Of, of, and and think, about, think about how people use the packaging as gimmicks at yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this flash of brilliance births an industry and eventually gives jobs to two lovebirds in LA named Jay and Margo. So let's go let's go back to Jay and Margo. Do you want to talk a little bit about the stories specifically behind some of these album covers? Immediately. Please. Okay. Yeah. And, so, and just pick one at random and it doesn't you don't have to yeah, just pick anything. So this is from an interview with Margo. Our firm started getting small design jobs from the record companies in town and at first it was designing the artist's name on the album cover. A logo here, a logo there, then the cover and onto the entire package. So you'll hear them talk, and I I listened to a podcast interview with the two of them, which actually was from like a week ago, which I did not know until the very end of researching this. I found this, and I was like, oh, I'm listening to this. Um, Wow. Yeah, so they were actively on a podcast. I mean, we could probably get them, but like, it's the story, uh, the story, like, it's in the framework of the, the Steinweiss story and some other things we'll talk about. Their story alongside of it is what I think is so interesting for this show. So... Here's what happens. One of the first albums that they get to work with a package on, which is when you start doing all the different pieces, she explains, is Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. 
So these guys just get into LA from Florida and they say, okay, yeah, these cats can do this. So Jay designs the logo and Margo at this point in her career, still in the seventies is teaching herself to airbrush. And so she wasn't, she didn't have it down yet. So they give the illustration that Jay does to a guy in town who airbrushes it in automobile enamels, right? So, I mean, you know which one I'm talking about with the heart yes. and the, okay, yeah, the iconic Tom Petty thing that he was using all the way up to the end. Um, and so she said, then they do this photo shoot for the band. I can remember doing the photo shoot in the old movie theater, and one of them had a huge dildo, and it was so old it had a crank, and one of the guys kept messing with it the whole time. That was my first introduction to working in rock and roll. <laughs> it's a cranked up dildo. I never, I didn't know that. Do I just not know enough about that stuff? I didn't know no, that was I, a thing. I've never heard anything like that. And please, I want to talk to them. They sound like they'll be so much fun. Okay, keep going. So around 83 or 84, Warner Brothers needs a unique logo for the upcoming Prince album. And they come to Jay and they say, can you design something? So he walks in and after working through stuff, he has created this logo with these le- this lettering that he's created. And they're like, that's great, but there's a movie too, and we need you to do the entire alphabet. Like, because he'd only done the letters that were involved in Prince. So he's, he oh. creates this entire font that becomes the Purple Rain font for Prince and Purple Rain. So wow. sometimes this stuff is done at the label level, but in the record industry heyday of the 80s, Jay would actually go meet with bands to figure out what they wanted. So he's got these stories about meeting with Rod Stewart and Rod Stewart being picky about album, album covers and meeting, like getting in the back of a limo with Stevie Wonder and all the stuff that happened. There's a particular story that I bring up because of our history on this show with Quiet Riot about Quiet Riot. So, and, boy, and boy, that cover... I right? Can't wait to hear. So right. he has a lot to say in the audio interview that I listened to about how he thinks Kevin DeBrow is a jerk. Um, yeah. But, and that that is supposed to be Kevin DeBrow on, on the album cover, which I've always wondered that. He was kind of the model for that character. So, yeah. One of them, like, they're having conversations and they're like collectively talking about what to do for that album cover. And one of them says, oh, let's do the metal mask and blah, 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 right? So he's working on it. And he gets a call after midnight one night. And this is the early 80s. And his, he's got a wife and he's got kids and they're sleeping. And he's like, why, the, why is the phone ringing? And he picks up, it's Kevin DeBro and Spencer Proffer, the producer. Mm. And they're just arguing. I, dude, this was my idea. And he's like, no, this is my idea. No, this is my idea. And Jay's pissed that they called him at midnight yelling about whose idea it was for the, for the metal mask. So he just goes, guys, it was my idea. And he hangs up. And he says, actually, he has no idea whose idea it was. <laughs> but he just he wanted them to get off the phone. Uh, so let, let's get to Van Halen in 1984, right? I mean, I feel wow. like that's the coup de grace here. One of the it's most like cartoon it looks like when I think about it. it. It's it's one of those things that when I started looking at this and, and they brought up 1984, like I instantly knew it and I didn't know that I knew it. Right. I was like, oh, that's the one with the baby smoking a cigarette. But like I didn't even know that I would have been able to tell you that. So we talked about 1984 as an album on the show. We talked about Eddie Van Halen, obviously important record. And the album art's iconic. Like, I mean, that was the first thing you said, right? Like, what's up with the baby and the, the cigarette and all that stuff? So, What's up with these keyboards is the second question. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing it, Eddie. Okay, but go ahead. 
So, do you remember Autograph? Sure, yeah. Ding, 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 I was going to say, ding, ding, I was, ding, do ding, an impression, ding, please. Ding, ding, Sing straight up. Uh, so, uh, do you remember what their album covers looked like? Sign in, please, and that's the stuff specifically. That, were they just silvery looking? Yeah, they were chrome. You're right. But, dude, you're so good at this. Uh, I'm glad we have a podcast Turn together. Turn up the radio. So, oh, man. They had. Blech. Yuck. Whatever. You loved it. They had chrome, <laughs> female chrome robots on those albums. <laughs> Just saying, saying those words, female chrome robots. Dude, you laugh, but that's what Van Halen wanted on 1984. So they get referred to Margot because she did the autograph records. Because they say, <laughs> we want four chrome women on this thing. And so Margot, because of the art technique she uses, knows... That to do that properly, there's all these things, all these considerations you have to make about reflection and what it looks like if you had four chrome items next to each other, what the light would do. So for that to be photorealistic, and the reason they were coming to her, like to do it in the proper style, there would be all these things she'd have to consider. And she and, and, she and Jay were like, no, nah, that's not worth it. We're not doing that. Quote, all I could think of was the technical issues of having the multiple reflections of four dancing women since they wouldn't be independent they wanted them all dancing together the imagery was beyond where my mind could go so i said no i said i would do one chrome woman but i'm not going to do four dancing chrome women so (laughs) i love it this is where the story gets interesting so when she declines they ask if they can see her portfolio instead because they're like well this was our big idea you were the artist that was going to be able to do this for us what are we going to do so they take the portfolio eddie Alex and their manager, David, are looking through the portfolio and they stop at this picture that she's painted of an angel with a cigarette. She had done that 10 months before for the Los Angeles workbook. Now, the Los Angeles workbook is a large reference book for the commercial art industry. Every industry that hired out for photography, design, or illustration would use it. Now, think about it, right? This is before the internet. So you need to find like a a feel for what you want to accomplish for your client at an agency or whatever. So you get this big book that's been designed with all these different ideas and all these different designers. And you're like, Ooh, I kind of like this look, who would I call? Right. It's almost like a calling card. So companies would use these books to find out who the best art directors were, who the best illustrators were, who the best photographers were. And in 1983, they asked Margot to do a divider page based on a style of art. And she chooses photorealism. It, because that was what she felt she was the best at. And she wanted to paint something that looked real but couldn't be real. So that was the whole idea because she's trying to put this high concept into this Los Angeles workbook. She's always loved angels. The idea of a cherub smoking a cigarette comes into her mind. She's like, that's something you wouldn't actually see, right? But what I didn't have was the positioning or the child. All I knew that I wanted to do was a little cherub smoking a cigarette. So she calls a friend. The only friend, and she says, the only friend I could think of who had a young kid. <laughs> and she, imagine this phone call. Uh, hey, can I, can I borrow your baby and let him play with cigarettes? <laughs> so I'll put this in the show notes, but we've got the original photos that this is based on. Oh, wow. Holy shit. I needed this a baby, so and my best friend's son was the only baby I knew. 
Carter was happy to see me when I arrived, but had a tantrum when I tried to style his hair with that dippity do to make it look a little punkish. My all-knowing brilliant friend and Carter's mother, Colleen, suggested I give him a few minutes to get comfortable, and she was right. I gave him an hour. I got out my candy, which was a bag of candy cigarettes, and then he was just ready to go. So that position on the album cover is the position he put himself in. When Carter was ready, we went outside. It was a beautiful day in Malibu. He sat on one side of the picnic table, and I was across from him, and I began sharing the candy cigarettes and just snapping pictures. And the candy cigarette packages in those days looked real. The top one was supposed to look like Kent, and the bottom one was supposed to look like uh, Paul Mall, but they were named something entirely different. So in a lot of the pictures, he had a little polo shirt on, which I had him take off. And as children do, he changed positions quite often, and after running out of candy and film, he was still a willing model. Going through the photos back in my studio, I was happy to see that I had captured that perfect pose. So for the illustration, I then went in and added more blue sky and a few clouds to make the background look heavenly. And then I turned the wooden tabletop into marble and added the reflections of the candy cigarette packages. And then I added his wings. Huh. Wow. That's amazing. It's unbelievable. And so that is the thing that the guys in Van Halen see and go, you know what? I don't know. This might work. So she... Go ahead. So think about it. The cover of the last original, like that, the original lineup did that record before they they broke up. That's the one that was enormous and huge. With that cover, was an insert in a graphic design yeah. art like yeah. reference book. It was yeah. an insert in the middle of it. it that's absolute. Can you imagine? Like that's so crazy. So here is a really interesting point about this too. She illustrated it in the spring of 83. The workbook's published in September. And then the band saw it in her portfolio around October. And the album obviously comes out in January of 84. So January 1st, here's, here's something really smart that she did that she didn't do through most of her career. She retained the ownership. Oh, and she wow. just sold the rights for the album cover and the T-shirts. On a lot of things, backing back into the bigger story of Jay and Margot, they don't get royalties. Usually when an illustrator sells a picture, it is considered work for hire. The buyer owns all the rights and can use the piece forever. Typically, unless you do this all the time, People are so anxious to get their work on an album cover that they will sell it away. She says, I have sold my work away hundreds of times. Regardless of whether Van Halen used it or not, they weren't going to own the artwork. And she says, they have been so loyal over the years, their manager refers everybody to me. Oh, how how awesome is that? Now, in contrast, Jay designed Bon Jovi's lettering Think yeah. about the first album. He designed that lettering that they used. <laughs> yeah, that was... They bought that straight up. That's it. For 20 years, it's been on every consecutive album. And they used it as a logo. And he's never gotten... He's never seen any additional money outside of the original purchase. Oh, that's so crazy. Well, it's just... It's interesting because this has all evolved, right? Like, now we're like, man, that is insane. But that was, that was it. And that was the pitch, right? It's like, hey, do you want this on a cover? Sure, I want my art on a cover. Yeah, it's like people were like, couldn't believe when they found out that artists were having to 
pay to play at the Super Bowl, but like this is highway robbery. Like, you know, this yeah. is some bad news because I think now it is, it's very much less relevant, but I, I think that in the heyday of, you know, after Elvis and the British invasion and people bought records, they were part of the experience, the right. physical, yeah, totally visual, the smells, like all of it was, was part of it. And then you, you didn't know who they were. You had to read. It was the only window you had into the universe of what that music was. And that's why they were so important. Those like individual things that you, you held. So there, there is there is a great interview, and again, I'll put this in the notes uh, that was actually done like a, a week ago or posted a week ago on "Music Is My Life," which is actually put out by Berkeley in New England, um, and they have had lots of cool people on this podcast. This is episode fifty-eight where they actually talked to Mario and Jay. And they talk in that, the, the interviewer, um, who I really enjoyed, uh, it does ask them, he says, like, you know, thinking back to the time period where you were doing this, like, I remember going to stores, and, and just like you said, that was my only chance at, like, even having any idea of what I was getting myself into. And so the idea that this, at one time, didn't exist, and you would buy a paper sleeve, um, is is just really interesting, and it, it, it changes the whole conversation around the commerce around music and around what we connect to and don't connect to and it's you know and we're almost in some ways going backwards right we're kind of getting away from album art like in a lot of ways yeah. do you think the average kid do you think your your daughter for instance who's a teenager and i have one too do they think about what the album cover looks like for a Shawn mendez record or a harry styles record or, or even a Jack Carlo record? Do they really think about it, or is it just buttons they push on their phone? It's the latter. Yeah. Yet, there is still, all those artists still have album covers, which I yeah. can bring to mind very quickly, all three of them, you know, and and what they look like, and it helped, but is that an old guy trying to relate to something new? Is that why they're continuing to do that? Will that go away? I mean, it's all, it's all very interesting. There's definitely a graphic yeah. space in these streaming services, but... It's not huge. Sometimes it's a thumbnail. And, and people throw uh, lots of tomatoes at Spotify. And, and damn right they should. They, they, they employ Joe Rogan. And like he used to watch, <laughs> like make people eat cockroaches. And like people are listening to him about politics and health, public health stuff. But anyway, people have complained. They're like, why don't we have the album art? Um, you know, like, why can't, you know, it's like if you have this bio information that's not even really updated. Um it's just physical. It's like a physical upload of one time. If there's photographs, why can't you look at the art? And I think that's a valid thing. But I wonder if people, the way their listening habits are with devices, would even look at them. Man, I can't believe I didn't text you this this afternoon. But I had a long laugh out loud session by myself because I was looking at a band on Spotify, some indie rock band with you know a couple hundred thousand listeners. And they had, I was like, I wonder, I want to know more about these guys. And I went to their bio and they'd literally copy and pasted in the bio for McDonald's Canada. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I've never seen that before, but I laughed about it for entirely too long because for some reason that seemed like the perfect troll. 
Oh, that's amazing. I've seen them when people put one word or they put like a very yeah, short. That's that's annoying because sometimes I do want to know a little bit about the band, right? But whatever. So let's like I want to I want to stop one more place. I want to leave Jay and Margo the story because I did keep saying how did they get in Des Moines? This is basically Jay and Margo's life now. They had a daughter. The daughter ended up moving to Des Moines. They got older and they decided um, hey, we're gonna we'll go follow her for a little bit, and they tried to get her to come to California. She wouldn't do it, and so they they kind of ended up there because of family. And now they're still designing and doing things, and they're taking some studio space. And if you hear them talk about it, they say they love Iowa except for the winters, which, from what I know, I can totally understand that. Um, and they do in fact own a gallery in the mainframe building in downtown Des Moines, Iowa. So if you are Ever driving through in Des Moines, it's a beautiful place, by the way. Uh, I actually really do like it. Uh, stop in and check out Margot and Jay, because man, what a power couple! Boom. Yeah, and I want to go hit that gallery. That's a state I've never been to. How weird is that? So here's where I want to end as we leave Margot and Jay. Uh, obviously we could do a whole podcast just about album covers. Like we could literally just start only talking about album covers and their backstories. Like that could be a thing. We could do it as a spinoff. I'm not saying we will, but we could, there are a lot of stories to tell. The other one I want to talk about briefly on this episode uh, is an album that is iconic for its cover and is 50 years old this month. Uh, That's sticky fingers. Yeah, that's right. I was, I, yeah. Oh my gosh! Wow. So, what do you want to talk about first? So, so <laughs> here, here, here it is. So, Warhol, of course, is involved, and and he's involved in another album cover that's very, very, very famous. Uh, thinking specifically of the banana uh, on the Velvet Underground, right? But yeah. here's what you don't know: he had a partner in crime, and his partner in crime is named Craig. Braun, and he was known in the heyday of vinyl records as a designer of sophisticated cover packages. So when we were talking about the whole package or the whole thing, you know, Margo, when you hear Margo and Jay talk or you read about them, they'll talk a little bit about how they were all these different parts that they would have to design, right? When she talked about like the Tom Petty logo and then going to the photo shoot. So this guy was known for, for doing the really interesting stuff that they just really don't do anymore, right? Right, and so he did Velvet Underground and Nico, um, and you had the peel where you could peel it yeah. back and see the pink banana, um, mm. and and here's the thing, and I'm gonna put again, I'm gonna put this in the show notes. So earlier this month, Joe Hagen wrote a piece for Vanity Fair where he just basically prints what Craig Braun says to him, like he gets Craig Braun on the phone. And asks Craig Braun about uh, Sticky Fingers. And it's very long and slightly incoherent in parts. (laughs) (laughs) But it's amazing. Okay, so I'll give you the quick version. And then I'd encourage you to go read more about it. But the story behind the Sticky Fingers cover begins with Warhol, uh, who in the 60s was stewarding Braun at this time. And, And Braun, okay, you know... We all know a little bit about Warhol. Braun is just this guy from Chicago. He's totally working class. And he's die cutting and print manufacturing, right? That's like what he does. And then he gets this gig kind of through weird circumstances, a little bit like Jay and Margot. 
into doing rock and roll, high art and high society with Andy Warhol. And overnight, he goes from this dude who was basically printing the hype stickers, because this is how it starts. The record labels are paying him to print the stickers that say, includes the hit single. Like, that's literally what he's printing. And then all of a sudden, because of this connection, he's hanging out with Lou Reed and Elaine Stritch and Salvador Dali. (laughs) And uh, he ends up winning a Grammy in 74 for his packaging of the orchestral version of the Who's Tommy. Wow. He... He gets addicted to cocaine, and happens. and then after he recovers, he starts acting, and he's in Law and Order, and he's in Billions, and his son is Nicholas Braun, who plays Greg Hirsch on Succession. <laughs> so oh my cousin Greg, I know wow. it's crazy. So the story that Vanity Fair has is Braun, in his own words, talking about how this all happened. And it basically, he says, so Mick Jagger and Andy are in some club some night, and we're talking about album packages for the next record. And Andy said, wouldn't it be fun to put a blue jean zipper on a cover? And Mick says, yeah, man, sounds like a great idea. And so the president of the record label lays that idea to Craig. And Craig is saying to him, like, bro, this is going to be super challenging because if you put something like that on that cover, it could do damage to the record. Yes, that's right. And so it was this very complicated project. And meanwhile, uh, he's got all these other ideas that he's trying to pitch him on. And so in this article, he tells this story that one of the ideas he pitches him on, and this is really what I wanted to tell you, and then you can go read all the other stuff. This is so messed up. He pitches this idea that they go to this this house. And so uh, there's a house at the top of Mulholland and Coldwater in Los Angeles. And he goes up there and it has this pool. And uh, uh, supposedly at some point Al Jolson owned this house. So he has a photographer with a waterproof camera go underwater in the pool and take yeah. this picture. And then he blows up the heads of the, the the stones and he puts them so it's like they're looking into the pool and this huh. was right after Brian Jones died do you well, remember where out. do you remember where Brian Jones was found in a pool in a swimming pool so oh, he how- pitches to the band that they basically do this like you're as the record buyer in the position of Brian Jones laying in the bottom of the pool looking up at the rest of the band. Oh, my God. So they didn't do that. Uh, they didn't uh, do that. They didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It literally, so so he, he says it's so a boy. So they decided to make something that that damages the record. So, so <laughs> I, I'll get a spoiler alert. Here's basically the story. They go through, That's and funny. he goes through great detail about all the, the different things they try. But they end up doing this zipper. And he figures out a way to package it where he's like, okay, it's going to be there's going to be all these different um, things that are going to keep it from hitting the record. What he doesn't think about is how they package the records. So they put them in these crates to ship them. And then they put them in the back of trucks and they basically shipped the first, however many that they shipped and morphine didn't play on any of them because they ended up all getting crammed together in these crates and banging up against the 
same part of the record. Oh, and they wouldn't play Sister Morphine. Wow. <laughs> what a drag. Hey, by the way, Sticky Fingers, I just want I just want everyone to think about it. It did turn 50, and it might be the best Stones record. And why? Exile is a great record, but Sticky Fingers, there's not a clunker on that record. No, there, there really isn't. There really is not a clunker on that record. And, I, you know, I am fine with the Stones. I'm not a giant Stones guy who can walk you through the whole... 40 plus discography uh but i will say i mean i remember getting a copy of sticky fingers and being like oh this is what people have been talking about like every single song dead flowers one of my all times one of yeah. my all times well i have a distinct memory of moonlight mile and being at a party and it's like i don't know how i ended up there and it was real late and it was like six in the morning so i'm out in the porch the sun's starting to come up and I pour an entire glass of beer right on my crotch. And <laughs> Moonlight Miles playing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. Um, so I highly recommend this Vanity Fair piece. I won't take the credit for uh, any of the, the amazing things you're going to learn from Craig when you read it. So just go check it out. Um, and think about it. Think about the next time you're listening to a song, whether it's something old or something new. Think about album art that could or is or isn't attached to it because it's it i think it's worth thinking about and it's it's part of the reason i still buy physical product as much as you and all my friends mock me but i'm telling you if there's a zombie apocalypse i'm gonna have a great soundtrack and you're gonna be out of luck because the internet will be broken that's true man i'll loan you some stuff what do you want to borrow stone sticky fingers yeah, I just yeah, I just want like the classics. Which, I don't even want anything like new. Which song would you start with if there was a zombie chasing you? Like which song on Sticky Fingers? Oh, on Sticky Fingers? Yeah. I was like, oh, I'd pick the Dragula song by Rob Zombie. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I am a dead Dig through um, the ditches and burn through the witches. Yeah. yeah. Um I would uh I would play uh You Gotta Move. There you go. There you go. Nicely done, dude. Rock and roll bedtime stories. We do this every week. We're so glad that you hang out with us, and we're so glad you sent us notes like Nate did. If you have something you want to uh, for us to look into, we'll do it. All you got to do is send us a note. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Check out the show and the other shows that we do and all the stuff we are into at we are the story guys.com. And Murdoch, I got to ask you, what do people need to uh, do until the next time we meet again? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright point have we got stories productions. All rights reserved.